0: Thanks for checking out the Elevate Student Ministry podcast. To find out more about us, visit our website at iloveelevate.com. You can also stay up to date with what's going on by finding us on social media platforms like Instagram, Facebook, and Snapchat. Please consider subscribing to the podcast and sharing it with your friends. We hope you enjoy this message and it brings you closer to Jesus. Oh man, I'm excited. This is week two of our series of the life of Jesus through the book of Mark. The year before last year, we did the book of Luke. Every other year, we're going to do a gospel. We're going to constantly stay fresh on the life of Christ. He's the one that we're emulating. He's the one that gave it all for us. He's the center of our faith. And so every other year, we're going to go through a, a gospel. Mark is interesting. Mark is the earliest... It's the first of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. It was probably written before Peter died because Mark was Peter's scribe. There's a very good chance that the Gospel of Mark is actually Peter's Gospel that Mark wrote down from the stories and the sermons of Peter. And so we have firsthand account in a lot of ways through the book of Mark of what went on. Mark was probably a boy when Jesus was alive. He probably met him. And then after his death, the apostles would often stay at Mark's house. They would come through and his parents would put up the apostles. That's cool. And then he traveled with Paul for a little while on his missionary journeys. He became a scribe of Peter, like I mentioned, and he was probably Peter's translator since Peter was Hebrew and Mark would have been Roman or Greek. Mark's gospel is the shortest. It's only 16 chapters and he leaves out a lot of the content that the other gospels include. But on the content that he does include, he has more detail than the others. Probably because they're coming from the recollections of Peter. But Mark is a lot less concerned on giving you everything there was to know about Jesus. And he is much more concerned about this being an evangelistic book that tells you what you need to know for salvation. And so, of the 16 chapters... Only like eight of those are really focused on the life of Jesus. And then he is rushing. I think it's like 10 are focused on the ministry of Jesus. And he's rushing to get to the last six chapters because he's going to slow down three years in 10 chapters. And he's going to do one week in six chapters because he's just trying to get to. Let me get to the point here. Let me show you. And it's almost like he boiled down what are the most important aspects for a believer to know or a non-believer to know to make a choice about who Jesus was. And he's in a hurry to show us the passion of the Christ. The passion of the spotless Lamb, that suffering servant. You'll often see the word immediately. Because again, he's like in a hurry to get to the main parts. He's like, so Jesus was here, and immediately he went there. And then immediately he did this, and immediately he did that, as you read through it. His emphasis was on Jesus as a servant. His emphasis was on the fact that it was through suffering and servitude that Jesus would become all-powerful and king. And he's writing to believers that at that time were under heavy, heavy persecution from the Roman Empire. They were gathering Christians and feeding them to lions. They were dipping them in tar and lighting the circus with burning Christians. They were sacrificing families and killing people and separating babies from their mothers. It was awful time to be alive. And so for Mark to write down... And to show Jesus as a suffering servant, he's trying to relay that through persecution and suffering, we have victory. If God himself would go through this persecution, if he would be sacrificed, if he would die, and be elevated to the name above all names, to King of Kings and Lord of Lords, then we have the example of if we can hang in there. Death is worth it. Sacrifice is worth it. Because it's through this suffering that we have a victory in Jesus and through him. Also, the book of Mark ends abruptly. All the other gospels, they give you a lot more detail. Jesus raises from the grave. You find out what people thought about it, what they did afterwards, and Jesus' appearance. Mark cuts it right off. Jesus is in the, is in the grave. And then... Some women decide to go visit. When they show up, the grave is empty, and there's a a guy in white, an angel, and he says, he's not here anymore. Go and tell people. And then it says, and the women left and didn't tell anybody, end of Mark. Now when you look, there may be some verses beyond that, but your Bible's going to make a note saying these were added later to kind of conclude the book, but they were not part of Mark's gospel. And so Mark leaves you hanging. He gives you the bare necessity facts to make a decision and a clear decision of who do you believe Jesus was. And that decision is still laying in front of us today. 2,000-year-old story, who do you believe that Jesus was? Here are the details that you need to know. Here are the li- Here's the sermons that Jesus preached. Here's the miracles that he did. They weren't just magic tricks. They were signs because each of his miracles were teaching us something about who Jesus was. He died on this cross. He resurrected. A bunch of women testified to it. The end. Decision-making time. Mark is going to constantly bring us back to a crossroad. Where we have to choose what we believe about this historical person of Jesus. Of whether or not he was God in flesh. We're going to start in chapter 1. We're going to jump over a little bit. We're going to open up our message tonight with Mark chapter 1, verse 14 through 15. And there is the synopsis of his gospel. This is what Mark wants you to get out of it as you read the whole thing. You ready? Now, after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, here you go, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Gospel means good news. It's like someone shows up at your house and is like, you won the sweepstakes. Good news. It's time to party. Kind of good news. Believe in the good news. Repent and believe in the good news. Interesting that repentance comes first. We may deal with that a little bit later. Repent, believe in the gospel, follow Jesus, spread the gospel. There's his theme. But I want to take you back to where Mark gets its foundation. Isaiah chapter 40, verses 3, and then we're going to jump to 5. We have the story of King Hezekiah. Hezekiah. And king Hezekiah is a good king. He loves the Lord, makes some bad decisions. The king of Babylon, who's like the big bad country, the big bad king sends him a gift, and is like, oh, we heard you're sick, so here's a gift. And he's like, awesome, and takes the messengers, he's like, thanks for the gift, and he takes the messengers who brought the gift from the big bad country and the big bad king, and he shows them all of Jerusalem's treasury, and he shows them all of their their mass riches, and look, here's how great our defenses are, and here's our armory and all the weapons that we have. Yay! And Jerusalem becomes a target of the big bad country of Babylon with the big bad king. And so, Isaiah comes to Hezekiah and he's like, what did you just do? And Hezekiah's like, I showed him everything. There's nothing that I didn't show them. And Isaiah's like, <laughs> okay. So God says something about this. And he says something to the effect of the day is going to come with all that stuff that you just showed Babylon is going to be taken right out of our hands. The good news is it's not happening Yet. But the day is coming and it leaves the reader of Isaiah like an attention like, oh, man, when's this going to happen? And it does. Babylon will come and will conquer Jerusalem in 586 B.C. Completely other story. But in the midst of what Isaiah is telling him, he's talking about he throws in this little side note about how God is going to come and lay out a straight path. So this is Isaiah 40 verses 3 and verses 5. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Watch this. Just a little bit. The little eggs are here. So God is going to reveal his glory for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. I don't know. To me, maybe this is me making it up. But Jesus is called the word. John 1.1. Jesus is referred to as the Word. And Colossians says that Jesus is the perfect reflection of God the Father. That Jesus is the glory of God on earth. And I just think that is is beautiful. Now later, Malachi, so Jerusalem gets conquered, no more Israel. They get drug away to Babylon as slaves. God releases them under the reign of Persia. They come home, they rebuild the temple, they rebuild the city. And They're still not doing that great spiritually. And Malachi comes, and he is the last prophet of the Old Testament. He's the last word on this whole issue. Until a 400-year gap where God no longer speaks to his people, no longer sends prophets for a new revelation. Dead air silence. And Malachi is the last word. So we're going to turn to Malachi. Malachi picks up on Isaiah's theme, and God reveals a little more. Malachi 3.1, and this is what we're going to focus on a little bit tonight. He says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord who you seek will come suddenly, come to his temple. Even the messenger of the covenant, in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So Malachi picks up on this theme a little bit. Let's also jump forward to Malachi chapter 4. 5 and 6. These are the last verses of Malachi. This is the last word that God has for 400 years. And he says this, Behold, I will send you Elijah. That messenger as referred to in Malachi chapter 2. I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Let's keep going. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. So we have this messenger coming. He's going to come in the spirit and ministry of Elijah. Y'all remember who Elijah was? Calls fire down from heaven, confronts the prophets of Baal, takes a sword and kills like hundreds of people by himself. And then he meets God out on Mount Sinai and God comes to him in the, in the wind and the fire and all these amazing things. But God doesn't speak through those things. He speaks to the still small voice while he was in the cave. Amazing story. Go back, read Elijah's story. God's saying, I'm going to send a messenger who's going to come in a ministry just like Elijah. But he's not coming just to hang out. He's coming to prepare the way for my coming. See, that's really significant. That's God Yahweh, the big cloud burning down Sinai, pillar of fire, separates the Red Sea. God says, I personally will be coming and this messenger will be Now back in the day, if a king was visiting a city, he would send a messenger ahead and the, the messenger would go ahead and get everybody riled up. And they'd make sure the streets were prepared and the king had a place to stay. And the messenger would tell everybody, the king is coming to town, get yourselves ready. And then the king would come in and his royal horses and people were prepared for the king. And this is the same concept. I'm sending my messenger ahead and he's going to prepare the way for my arrival. They had no clue what God might have been talking about. What does that mean? That God personally himself will be arriving on scene. So Mark, when we jump in, plunges right into the point. Verse 1. Mark 1.1. 1, 1. You ready for this? We read it last week. There we go. Y'all have revivals? Next week, you're going to have Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, we'll have an Elevate-branded Bible. Literally branded. Literally branded. It's awesome. So last week, we read Mark 1.1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Gospel meaning that good news, that glad tidings, right? The beginning of the gospel. So I love the word beginning. Because the next thing he's going to say is he's going to refer back to Isaiah Malachi. Verse 2. As it is written in the prophets... Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make his path straight. Verse 1, the beginning of the gospel. So when did the gospel, the good news, begin? Well, it begins in the Old Testament. Mark isn't starting something from scratch here. He's starting and building on the foundation of what He's already learned what the nation has already been studying. But where does the Old Testament begin? That kind of language is, is hearkening back to Genesis one one. In the beginning, God created. Why? Because before the foundation of the world, God purposed that Jesus would die on the cross. The gospel doesn't begin at Mark 1, the earliest written gospel. The gospel begins with a sovereign God who already purposed what he would do at the state of beginningness Of Genesis 1 and Mark picks up that story behold I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you the voice of one crying in the wilderness prepare the way of Yahweh make his paths straight and so they're all on the edge of their seat who's the messenger verse 4 John came baptizing in the wilderness just in case anybody was wondering next verse. Remember, Mark is not mincing words. He is going to make his point and he's going to move on. He wants right away for us to know, John the Baptist is the messenger that precedes God's coming. Yahweh's visitation of earth. John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sin. So John has a very clear message. Repent of your sin and be baptized. And in in this day and age, and still today, baptism represents a whole, complete surrender to God. Everything gets wet. Everything that you are, top, top of your head, to the bottom of your feet, is in submission and surrender and dedication to God. Side note. There was a time whenever the Christian armies, back in the day of crusades, Christian armies, we're going to go to war, but they kept dying, so they needed to hire mercenaries. But you can't have some mercenaries come in and fighting our holy wars. So they felt the obligation to baptize their mercenaries. The mercenaries didn't care. You know, they're just here because they're getting paid. And they would take them and baptize them. And every mercenary, they would take their sword and they would hold it out. And so as they would go under the water, they'd keep their sword dry. We have to be careful that a lot of us will come to the Lord and we'll be holding something out of what we'll be willing to surrender. We have to be careful. Because a repentance and a baptism for the Lord means a whole surrender of self. Everything's going underneath the surrender of God and underneath his ownership. That's a side note. That's for free. So he comes and he's baptizing for the repentance or baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Verse 5. Then all the land of Judea and those from Jerusalem went out to him and were all baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. That's a big deal. Let me tell you why that's a big deal. Because Jews saw baptism as a means of non-Jews to get into the faith. So for John to point at Jews and say, you're not in the faith yet, you need to be baptized, is a really hard message to sell. It's really hard to point at people that would say, but Abraham is my great, 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 whatever grandfather. Therefore, I'm already in, by birth. And John's pointing up at them and saying, your heart's wrong. Remember, John is coming in the spirit and power of Elijah. Elijah stood before King Ahab and Jezebel when Israel was at their absolute worst sin and worst idolatry, and the idea that John the Baptist would walk in that manner, looking at a whole bunch of godly people in the face and saying, you need to change your ways, that is a real stab to their pride. Needed stab to their pride. Now John was clothed in camel's hair, and with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. That's interesting. What if he dipped the locusts in the honey? I don't know. It still wouldn't taste good. And he preached, saying, There comes one after me who's mightier than I am, whose sandal strap I'm not worthy to stoop down and loose. I indeed baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. I'm going to read Malachi. We're going back, remember? Malachi. Chapter 3, this is verses 2 through 3. But who can endure the day of his coming, as in God's coming? Who's going to be able to stand before a holy and perfect God? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire. And like a launderer, it's like a, someone who washes clothes, like a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi. That's like pastors in their day. And he'll purge them as gold and silver that they may offer to the Lord an offering of righteousness. How appropriate that John would be preaching a message of repentance as a means of purification when he's walking in the prophecy of that, that God is going to come and purify his people. John came with a very similar ministry to Elijah. Here are some just interesting crossovers that I found. And this is me looking up smarter people than I am. So, both John the Baptist and Elijah were both troublemakers to their king. Herod hated... Herod's going to kill him. <laughs> he was not pleased with John the Baptist. Both of them came out of the wilderness. They were both known for their wardrobe that was like the wilderness. Camel's hair, leather belt, eating weird things. They both spoke against a spiritual depravity. And you got to catch this. This is crazy. Because... The spiritual depravity of the Old Testament of Elijah was awful. And for John the Baptist to say, you are just as far away from God as they were is crazy because they prided themselves on how godly and good and righteous they were. But they didn't understand that they were so prideful about their godliness that they had missed God and were only glorifying themselves. You know, There's a story that Jesus tells about the prodigal son. A boy that abandons his dad basically says, you're as good as dead to me. I want my inheritance now before you die. And he runs off and he wastes his money with prostitutes and food and all kinds of whatever until he's broke. And he finds himself sitting with pigs and just wishing he could eat the pig's food because he's so hungry and he's so destitute. And he comes to himself and says, man, if only I could eat as well at least as my dad's servants I'm just going to go home and ask my dad if I can just be a servant in his house. Y'all remember this story? And so he's going home, and it says that the father saw him a long way off, as in the dad was watching. The dad was looking. As he comes over the hill, the dad does something that noble Jewish dads do not do. They only walk with dignity. Pulls up his robe between his legs so he can run and sprints to his boy and bear hugs him, right? Right? And he puts a ring back on his finger that represents authority. And he puts a robe over him because he was cold and naked and destitute. And he brings him home and throws him this big party. But, meanwhile, do you all remember that other brother? The other brother that never left home? That stayed serving the father? That did everything right? Who doesn't come into the party to celebrate the other son? I don't know if you've ever noticed it before, but it says that the dad went to the prodigal son that ran off. But it also says that the dad went out to the other brother. As in, in both cases, the father was making the effort. In both cases, the father was going the extra mile and reaching out to. And then the father gets to this other boy and says, what's the matter? Why aren't you partying with us? And he has this big, you know, sort of temper tantrum and he's like, but I've been here and I've been good and I haven't done anything wrong and why are you doing this for him? And you have to understand that Israel in in Elijah's day was a lot like the first son who went running off after idols. But Israel today in uh, John the Baptist's time is a lot like that other brother that's just as far away from dad while being at home as the prodigal son was when he was sitting in pig slop because he was totally missing the relationship. He was so wrapped up in how awesome he was that he didn't realize he was still living with dad. The dad with that kind of warmth, that kind of love, that kind of of genuine love. Israel had swung from one side completely to the other and they were just as deprived, spiritually dead, as they were in Ahab and Jezebel's day. And And I... John the Baptist comes and he points the finger at him and says, you need to get it straight. I'm coming to prepare a way and make a straight path. Both John the Baptist and Elijah preached a sermon of repentance. Both of them fell victim to an evil woman, Jezebel for Elijah, and it was Herodias for John the Baptist. If you have read the story, it's crazy. It's like reading Days of Our Lives or something. Both of them were bold. Elijah had fire from heaven. John the Baptist got to witness the Holy Spirit come from heaven. That's kind of cool. They both saw the manifestation of God, or Elijah saw the manifestation of God at Sinai. John saw the person of God in Jesus. That is so neat. Both of them at one time or another began to second guess. Remember Elijah sitting in the cave? Woe is me. I just wish I was dead. And then John the Baptist sends his messengers to Jesus and says, Are you really the Son of God? And both of them called Israel back to Yahweh. Pointed them. Elijah did it spiritually, but John the Baptist got to call him back to Yahweh in flesh. There he is. There's the Son of God. Behold the Lamb. Those are pretty cool parallels. Go smarter people than me. Love them. His ministry, Jesus' ministry, will be far greater than John the Baptist. John the Baptist only has water. Baptizing you with water. But someone's coming after me that has more than just the physical realm at his disposal. Someone's coming after me that's going to baptize you in the Holy Spirit, as in God's stuff. You're going to be completely surrendered, not just with H2O. You're going to be surrendered under the very presence of Yahweh. That is so powerful. The countdown is over. The 400 years that we've waited, it's all in the past now. He is here. Joel, Old Testament prophet, chapter 2, verse 28, God is speaking and he says, It will come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. You have to understand that God is saying that this is something that he himself will do. So again, Mark does not mince words. Verse 8, I baptize you with water. He's going to baptize you in the Holy Spirit. Who could it be, asks the reader. Verse 9, and it came to pass, just to not leave you in suspense, in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And immediately coming up from the water, he saw the heavens parting and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. Then a voice came from heaven saying, You are my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. This is beautiful. That is so cool. You see, in the Old Testament, David and the other judges and other kings, they were anointed with oil. Like so much oil it would run from their head to their toes, just pouring oil over them with an anointing. And then other times in the Old Testament, God would put his Holy Spirit on someone to do some great task. Samson to kill lots of people. Elijah to run like 40 days without food or sleep. It would come on them for a temporary task. So you have this anointing of authority. You have this spirit moving to do some incredible thing. And in Jesus, you have him being anointed by the Holy Spirit. That is amazing. And this is another, another spot where we see the Trinity at work. Reference last week. It's online. It was a great, great, I had so much fun talking about the Trinity last week. But we have God the Father speaking. We have the Holy Spirit descending. We have Jesus being baptized. The Trinity in one, acting as one. It's so cool. This is also hearkening back to Solomon's temple. Remember Solomon, or David spent his whole life gathering parts of the temple, and then Solomon built it. And then at the temple dedication, it said that God's spirit came down in the temple like this great smoke, and it filled the temple. And the priests were so overwhelmed by the spirit that they couldn't sing, they couldn't play. All they do is just lay on the floor. And here we go having... Not a temple, but a person that God's spirit is descending on. Jesus is anointed with the Holy Spirit in a permanent way, displaying his authority, but also his power. He is the very presence of God on earth. Further, if there's any question about what Mark thinks that Jesus is. like Jesus, Mark is not like waiting around for you to figure it out. Mark's like, look, look, the Holy Spirit came down on him. And then, by the way, the father was like, hold on. <laughs> That's my kid. He's awesome. I love him. He's look you over there in the sandals. Come here. Look, I love this kid. That's my son. Yeah, when God the Father opens up the sky to announce something, it makes a, it makes emotion in the crowd. That's my son, in whom I am so well pleased. So right here at the beginning of Mark, no doubt Jesus to Mark Peter is the Son of God. That is. That's amazing. And then verse 12 immediately the spirit, that spirit that descended on him, drove him into the wilderness. And he was there in the wilderness for 40 days, tempted by Satan, and was with the wild beasts, and the angels ministered to him. And so here we go. We have the recognition of who he was, and then we have the testing of who he was, and he comes out unscathed. Verse 14. Now after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Two things I want you to catch here. The first thing that I'd like you to catch is that Jesus' message is so similar to John the Baptist. But what just happened to John the Baptist because of this message? Like Jesus is stepping into a dangerous ministry right now. Like he knows, heads up, like he's not just like another preacher on TV or making podcasts. He is stepping into a position that the guy before him just got put in prison and is about to be beheaded because of this ministry. And Jesus is like, I'm in, 100%. This is worth it. We're going all the way. The other thing I want you to catch is that John preached repentance and remission of sins. Jesus preaches repentance and the gospel. The gospel is a fulfillment, a newer level. It's not just not just a remission of sins, It's not just like your sins are erased. But the gospel is that Jesus came so that we could have our sins erased and become one and reunited with the Father. That we would inherit heaven. That our sin and our guilt would be washed away. That the Holy Spirit would come on his, on his people and, and dwell in them at their conversion at that time. There is a whole myriad of gifts that come with the gospel. Repent and believe in the gospel. Mark's goal for his reader was that the good news, the gospel, was more than just Jesus' healings. A lot of people flocked to Jesus just for the healings, it was more than just the exorcisms. People love seeing Jesus cast demons out, but that wasn't the gospel. These were signs of his identity and his power, but the heart of the gospel, the good news, is that our sins are erased by repentance and belief in Jesus. Romans 10, verses 8 through 13. But what does it say? The word is near you and in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. That if we confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in our heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, one believes unto righteousness. And with the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew or Greek. It doesn't matter what ethnicity ethnicity you are. For the same Lord over all is rich to all who call, call upon him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That is the gospel that Mark wants to relay at the start, at the very beginning. Everything else that comes after this is just in support of that synopsis, of that mission statement. So, before we spend the next couple months in the book of Mark, I want to ask you right here and right now, but I want to kind of begin with a story that I heard as a kid and it's stuck with me ever since. And you've probably heard me tell it before because I love this story and maybe hearing it more than one time will help you remember it. There was a little town schoolhouse, and this is back in the day of like horses and buggies and stuff, and they had no teacher. Actually, they had several teachers, and every one of the teachers left because the students were so difficult. So they put an ad in the paper in the nearest city, and they're looking for someone to take on a challenge. And so this idealistic young man, full of spunk and ready to take on the world, responds to this, this news article. And he's fresh out of, out of college and excited. And his first day of school, he's got, you know, a, a handful of people show up. And in the back of the room sat Big John. And Big John was a mess. He was huge, and he ruled the roost. And he was always going to have it his way. And just as the teacher tries to get up to speak on the first day, he could see Big John also stand up and begin coming down the aisle with his brooding presence. Because this is the same guy that beat up the teachers that came before him. And he's coming down the aisle and he's going to make sure that this guy knows who's in charge of this classroom. One step after another, and the teacher is cold, nervous about what's about to happen. And just as he gets about arm's reach, the teacher goes, You! You're in charge of this place. And he... (laughs) Thank you for recognizing. And since you're in charge of this place, we need to establish some guidelines and rules around here. So what should the first rule be? Big John was lost. Um... um, no stealing from people. Perfect. And he goes to the chalkboard. No stealing. Rule number one. Thank you, Big John. I really appreciate that contribution. And Big John takes his seat. And they went through a list of other rules. And they had day one. And the teacher was, uh, yes. I made it. Day one, and then day two, and then day three, and day four, and week two, and week three. And the kids are learning. Stuff is going places. Also a part of this, the teacher said, you know, these rules are nothing unless we have some punishment. So what's the punishment being for each of these rules? Big John, you're in charge. What is it? Ten licks with a belt. Okay. Week five, week six, week seven. And then one day it happened. Big John comes in the back of the schoolhouse and he is dragging this kid by the neck of his jacket. And this kid was little Timmy. Yep, big John, little Timmy, just deal with it. And he drags little Timothy to the front of the room and drops him in a puddle in front of the teacher's feet and he says this kid stole my lunch and he's looking at him and by the way teacher ten licks with a belt and the kid looks up at him his face is dirty son you know the rules he looks back at John and he knows that if he doesn't do this If he weakens here, if he doesn't hold, he knows his classroom will be lost. Big John will run the roost and he will be run out. He's gotta stick it out. And so Timmy stands up. All right, Timothy, you're gonna have to have to take your jacket off. And Timothy takes his jacket off. And as his jacket comes off, he has no shirt on. It's just bare skin underneath his jacket. Timmy, why? Why'd you do this? Why? Why'd you steal from Big John? Uh, teacher, I was hungry. I don't have any food in my house right now, and my dad's out of work. And uh, you know, I was Timothy. You know, you know, you know the punishment. You're gonna have to. I'm gonna need you to turn around. He takes off his belt. And the kid bends over, and he's just bones, just spine, just bones. He he can't not do it. He has to follow through, or this is a, this is a lost cause. And so he pulls back and lays the first lash on on Timmy, and just the 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 tension is just breaking. Timmy's crying. He's got this big red stripe at this point. The teacher is like knees are knocking together and he has to do this thing. And he does a second. <laughs> and then a hand comes up. What do you want, big John? I'm doing this. Alright. Oh, teacher, uh Teacher, I don't I don't remember any rules about who takes the licks. Um, can I take his whoopings for him? come on up, John. Are you sure? And he takes his shirt off, and he's a brawny guy. There's nothing missing with Big John. And he executes the rest of these lashes, one after another after another. <laughs> and <laughs> further, before they began, Timmy is, has his hands on the desk in front of him, and Big John puts a hand on one side, And he reaches around and puts the hand on the other side and puts his head on his back. Six and seven and eight and nine. Big John takes the licks. We have a Savior who was powerful, all powerful. The one who wrote the rules. And the one who came under submission to the very rules that he designed so that he could put himself over all of those who cry out to him. So that he could put his hands on both sides of ours and take the full punishment that was righteous, that was correct and just for our sin. And his name was Jesus. And the stripes were on his back that were for us, that we deserve. And Mark is putting it right up front. Right up front that the way that we say yes is to cry out and say, Jesus, I believe you're the son of God. I am a sinner. Please forgive me. My life is yours. The message is the same. Salvation begins with repentance. If you ever said, a prayer, and it didn't begin with, I'm nothing. I'm a sinner. That's where it starts. And then, I want you to know that when we give our lives to the Lord, something beautiful happens. You don't have to doubt your salvation. Because it doesn't matter if you did it just right or believed it just hard enough. It's no longer based on your faithfulness. Your salvation was never about you or getting something right. Your salvation was based on his faithfulness. And as long as your God is faithful, your salvation is intact. What a great God we serve. God is so faithful. He took our licks for us. If you have never repented, if you've never said, God, my life is wholly yours, I challenge you tonight. And we're going to have some prayer time, and it's twofold. Don't miss this. One is if you'd like to give your heart to Jesus tonight, right here at the beginning of Mark, before we dive into the rest, if you'd like to give your heart to Jesus tonight, uh, our e-group leaders, if you all would come forward, are going to be up here. The second half of this coin is if there's someone in your life that God brings to your mind that you want to pray for salvation for, please come up and pray with these leaders for salvation. And then don't stop praying for them day after day after day, pray for them. I met a sweet woman today. And just in our conversation, she said, I've been in a real dark place and my husband doesn't really know what to do for me and I don't know what to, to do to get out of this dark place because this, this situation happened and I lost someone that I loved and I just haven't been able to get over it. And I said, wow, I'm so sorry. How long ago did they pass away? That was about two years ago my gosh. Mourning for two years. Dark place was what was her exact words. Jesus wants better. Jesus heals what's impossible. He heals the deep down. He's the only one that can get into that. She, This woman can't fix herself. Her husband can't fix her. There's no counselor on the planet that can fix that kind of pain and depth, But Jesus can. I hope that someone will come to mind for you that is in a dark place. And if they haven't given their lives to Jesus, I promise you, they're in a dark place. And so I I love it. If you'd like to give your heart to Jesus, please come down and pray with one of these prayer counselors. And if you have someone in mind that you'd like to pray for for salvation, come on down and pray with these prayer counselors. And then you remember day after day to continue to pray for that person. Thank you, Holy Spirit. Thank you, Jesus, for taking our licks for us. Thank you for spreading yourself over us so that when God sees us, he doesn't see a sinner. He sees the holiness of his very son. That you cover us. That your blood pays the full price for every sin we ever committed. Holy Spirit, have your way tonight. Lord, if there's someone in their seat and they're, they're being pricked, their heart is being churned, they, I pray, Lord, that you'll motivate them and give them the courage to get out of their seat and say, yes, that's me. I want to give my life to Jesus. I want to repent. I'm such a sinner. I didn't know that my sins could be forgiven. I thought I was too far gone. I thought I was too bad. And Lord, I pray you'll also bring to people's minds tonight Faces and names of those who need a real and living God to come in and heal an impossible sickness, the sickness of sin. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for what you're doing. You are a good dad. Lord, we love you and surrender this time for